0: Hello, welcome to A Flat Pack History of Sweden. My name is Chris and this is episode 5.
1: Yes, this is episode 5. Boats, bronze and bartering, as we've decided to call this episode. I'm Åsa.
0: Like one of the earlier episodes, these are three things you need in this time period.
1: Those are the three things everyone really wants in life.
0: Yeah, exactly. Everyone wants boats, bronze and bartering.
1: Yes, but before we dive into that, we must comment on the current times. Even if this is a history podcast, we must mention the present times we're living in.
0: Yes, we're recording this, like a lot of our episodes, a bit in advance. So this is the 21st of March 2020. We're about a week into London lockdown, which we're all loving with the coronavirus. Uh, So we just wanted to say that we hope everyone is safe or at least uh, recovering from whatever is happening in your part of the world. Uh, Stay safe and uh, wash your hands, etc.
1: Yes, wash your hands and everything else that people who are a lot cleverer than us are advising you to do.
0: Yes, but in uh, personal news, I've just recovered from my wisdom tooth removal so I can eat solid food again, not just uh, mashed potatoes. So that's nice.
1: That is something that I'm very happy about for you as there's been a lot of mashed potatoes around the flat.
0: I drew sad faces on the mashed potato with my tomato ketchup (laughs) Yeah, because it hurt so much. But uh, you've just been back from a long trip to the north of Sweden and north of Finland.
1: Yes, a Swedo-Finnish trip uh, at the border up in the north, the border around Tornio. Uh, It was nothing related to the podcast but related to my day job. Uh, But it was an absolutely wonderful week or so and I met some lovely people up north.
0: Yeah, and if you've been keeping an eye on our Twitter account, you've probably seen some cool photos I also was able to take, including a selfie with about a thousand reindeer in the background.
1: True, true. I hung out with a lot of reindeers.
0: But yeah, and that's a good time to mention and give everybody a thank you to people who have been contacting us on Twitter and all of that kind of thing. Uh, And we've had about 500 downloads and listens so far across the various platforms. So thank you to all of those. And yeah, all those people who've been getting in touch on Twitter.
1: Yeah, that's amazing. 500 downloads is more than we could have hoped for at this point. So thank you to everyone who has listened to all the previous episodes. Or if this is your first episode, then welcome to the podcast cost
0: Yes, and uh, just before we get on to the history for this episode, uh, talking of people who have been listening, thank you to Cara Demizio Di on Twitter, who's been retweeting us a lot and getting involved in uh, an account that she runs called Time Travel Talks. So thank you so much. The support is really appreciated. And uh, that goes the same to other podcasts who have been getting in touch with us on Twitter and giving us some general tips and being nice, uh, including the history of Aotearoa New Zealand.
1: Yes, shout out to you. That's a great podcast. Very much recommend it.
0: But yes, we should now really get on with this episode. And like with all episodes, we're going to start with a Swedish phrase. And this one, um, I'm not really sure where it came up from and how it came up in conversation between us, but it's called Slängde Vegan.
1: Yeah, it literally means in English, Throw yourself into a wall.
0: Uh, any particular kind of wall?
1: No, any wall. It's not meant literally, it's a figurative phrase, nothing to do with harming yourself or others. It sort of means get lost or take a hike. Uh, if I or someone I support do better than our opponent, I can say, look at that great goal we scored, sling day vegan, other team. Or I'm so much better than you, sling day vegan. Throw yourself into a wall, get lost, I'm better.
0: I can imagine you saying that a lot in uh, all the handball games that are popular in the south of Sweden.
1: (laughs) Yeah, absolutely. But now it's time to throw ourselves into the episode.
0: Yeah, how about you give a brief summary of what we covered in the last episode so we can uh, fill in the gaps?
1: I'll try. So we learned that the Swedish Neolithic period had three cultures. Funnel Cup culture, the pitted ware culture, and the battle axe culture. All great names. The funnel cups introduced farming, the pitted ware culture held on to their hunter-gatherer roots, and the battle axe culture, they were the biggest and baddest of them all, and they added the best bits of both, and were around now as we enter into the Bronze Age.
0: And we also met the aurochs, those amazing monster-sized cattle and cows. They were really great.
1: Yeah, they were very cool.
0: We also talked about all different kinds of graves and caught up with some other cultures around Europe and the Mediterranean to give a bit of context and to see what they were doing at the time, so there was a lot of cool things we mentioned. And speaking of different cultures around the world, we mentioned the Pyramid of Djoser in Egypt, the the very first pyramid, and uh, good news, or at least um, recent-ish news, the news about this old stuff is that the pyramid of Jozo is actually just reopened to the public. It was kind of wrecked by an earthquake about 20 years or so ago, and that caused a lot of damage which needed to be fixed. Uh, so much so that it took about 14 years to fix this damage with a bit of a gap in the middle where they ran out of money or whatever it was. But if you happen to be in Egypt anytime soon, it's now ready and waiting for you.
1: Yeah, once we can safely travel again, then we can go and check out this cool pyramid that we've been talking about. But now back to Sweden and back to the Bronze Age. Probably a good idea to give a brief timeline. As always, you can split the period into smaller periods. But for Sweden, there is no temple phase like there was in Malta or any phase or period that has a nice name like that. In Sweden, this period is simply called Early Bronze Age, which is from around 1800 BCE to 1100 BCE, and then the Late Bronze Age from 1100 BCE to 500 BCE. A key thing, like with most of the stuff we've talked about so far, is that most of this story that we'll be telling is more about the bottom half of modern day Sweden. In northern Sweden, the division of the Bronze Age is different than in the southern parts. The early Bronze Age culture did not spread really into that region.
0: No, but the southern Swedes at the time were really branching out into the wider world, too, and not just to the north. And this really helped with a lot of things, namely the thing that names the period the Bronze.
1: (laughs) Yeah. The main problem with Sweden at this point is quite a big one when it comes to the Bronze Age. It had no native source of tin, and copper deposits were not exploited for another 2,000 years So we've come to the very fundamental part of the history. How do you get a Bronze Age to begin with when you have no bronze?
0: Well, the main idea is getting it from other people. And for the Swedes, that means trading. The people of the Nordic Bronze Age were really engaged in the export of amber, the material, not human beings, called amber. (laughs) (laughs)
1: Oh, that's not even funny.
0: No, it's it's not really that funny, to be honest.
1: (laughs) But yes, in case the listener is wondering, we are talking about the sort of reddish, orangey stone material.
0: Yeah, the stony glass kind of it looks like.
1: Yeah, stony glass material, and it's called amber. They did not trade women called amber.
0: No, but the Swedes and their surrounding Norwegian and Danish brothers exported all of this lovely amber to the Baltics, so the modern-day Estonia, Latvia, that sort of area, and they got metals in return. And in fact, a lot of them ended up becoming expert metal workers once they received the metal itself, so it was quite amusing that they became experts in using the metal, something they couldn't even make locally. And when you look at the number of metal finds from this time, the Nordic Bronze Age was perhaps the richest culture in Europe during its existence,
1: Yes, copper and tin and metalworking techniques were imported into the area from Britain and South Central Europe, including Mycenaean Greece. Even the finished products came, so the first bronze sword for example, which inspired uh, the local production to no end, as we'll see later. They were able to do this because amber really was the gold mine of the day for Sweden. In fact, most of it came from Jutland in modern day Denmark, so we shouldn't take all the credit away from the Danes. Amber was traded to Britain, Central Europe, and the area around Greece for all the bronze, as we said, but it would have also been uh, traded with hides, fur, tar products, and probably even slaves. Once it had its amber, Sweden became part of a wide-ranging Bronze Age trading network.
0: Yeah, and we can see this from this quite concise quote from Connected Histories, The Dynamics of Bronze Age Interaction and Trade, 1500 to 1100 BCE, in an article in Proceedings of the Prehistoric Society by Christian Christensen and Paulina szkolska Dutchke. And they go on to say... Baltic amber was craved in the eastern Mediterranean, and once South Scandinavia was able to take advantage of this situation, its wealth increased to unprecedented levels. Likewise, Cornwall possessed tin, the Carpathian region, salt mines, the steppes supplied good horses, etc., etc. In short, no region was able to maintain their social system without being part of the larger inter-regional networks that supplied the goods everyone needed.
1: And the way they did this was thanks to boats, of course, that's crucial. A Norwegian Bronze Age researcher, de Kvale, says that "...ideas, raw materials and material culture were spread far and wide through the use of seagoing vessels. The institution of travel brought together different local groups and established networks of interaction along the coasts of Scandinavia." and as such is a fundamental condition and premise for the Nordic Bronze Age. So there we have it, seafaring trade was the main reason for the start of and the raison d'être for the entire period. There are a number of identifiable examples of this trade that we can see now.
0: For one, it's possible to identify where the copper and tin came from to make the bronze pieces that are found in the archaeological record. Throughout Scandinavia, at the start of the Bronze Age, before around 1300 BCE, different regions had different providers of copper for their objects. Denmark and Sweden seem to have relied on the maritime trade along the North Sea to Versa or perhaps even the Rhine River, leading directly to the South German cultures which had connections to the Italian Alps.
1: Now, some people, such as Professor Yuan Ling at the University of Gothenburg, have spent, effectively, their entire career on this. But I've read a couple of Professor Ling's articles for this episode. The takeaway from all this is that the main source of copper for Scandinavians seemed to be the Italian Alps, with about 70% of all goods, mainly swords in Professor Ling's studies, having Italian copper in them
0: but that doesn't mean the copper was sort of brought right in the shop in Italy and brought all the way home by one hardy Swedish sailor or trader. One of the areas being looked at a lot in current scholarship is the links between South Britain and Wessex in particular and South Scandinavia. That's because there's a concentration of amber objects in Wessex from about 2000 to 1500 BCE, including plates and the beads and cups. Amazingly, the larger concentration of amber objects is found in the inland area of Wessex, with Stonehenge as the centre. There's specific rock art that's only found at either Stonehenge in Britain or Skorna in Sweden, so that's, that's really amazing. Out of all the areas in Europe that you could look at, this rock art only appears in these two areas which were trading with each other, so that really shows you the interconnectedness between Skorna and Wessex. And interestingly, Scania and Wessex are the only two regions in Northern Europe that have a substantial number of axe images from the period in question too. And all of this comes from amazing articles that look at the long-distance trade in these two regions. We really could go on about it forever, really, but uh, it's all out there, so we'll just quote a lot from some of the research that's out there, and if you want to read more or get in touch, you can uh, go to the sources section of our website on aflatpackhistoryofsweden.com, where you can uh, find a huge link of all the stuff that we've been reading for these episodes
1: yes and through this research we have found these connections between southern england and scone way before you and i met so that was established in history we aren't the first of those connections there were bronze age equivalents of us
0: Yeah, they just weren't doing a podcast. Although perhaps there's a series of rock art that hasn't been discovered yet called uh, Battle Axe History of Skorna and Wessex by uh, Krustolosh and Orselosh.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, maybe that's a a Skorna-Wessex couple made uh, that rock art series. But that is pure speculation. So we should probably move on with the actual history. Closer to home for us in terms of where we live, not in the podcast... We have the Dover boat, a boat found near Dover, surprisingly.
0: Yeah, these things are always very handily named, and this is a boat that's around 10 to 13 meters long, although they've actually only excavated around 9 meters of it. And it would have been a cargo boat from the 1500s BCE, so perfect timing for those who might have been coming to southern Scandinavia to hoover up all that lovely amber. The boat would have needed just over a dozen crew, and would have been able to carry about 3.5 US tons of cargo, so that's a lot of bronze and amber.
1: Yeah, that is a lot. That is more than any one of us can carry.
0: (laughs) Exactly. If I was going to carry all this, you definitely need a boat. Now, there's some indirect evidence of the levels of trade going on in the Bronze Age that come from the Bronze Age periods in the Mediterranean, and particularly Greece and in and around the Baltic Sea. There are a number of shipwrecks from this area, particularly one very impressive one smack bang in the middle of the Nordic Bronze Age.
1: Yeah, this is so interesting. This is the Uleburun shipwreck, Pardon my pronunciation, found six kilometers off the coast of Kass in southwestern Turkey. So that's about a hundred kilometers or so east of the island of Rhodes. The spectacularly preserved artifacts that make up what historian Cheryl Ward calls perhaps the best known and largest assemblage of evidence for late Bronze Age trade. There have been many studies of the ship and they have found 15,000 artefacts. And that's not counting the 85,000 ceramic, glass and stone beads. That is just so much stuff.
0: That's a lot of beads. Uh, I wouldn't want to be the poor intern who had to count them all.
1: Yeah, one bead. Two beads. 8,500 beads.
0: <laughs> Still got more to go. <laughs> but yeah, there's a lot of beads. And uh, this is why I love reading about all this kind of stuff and the shipwrecks and case studies from this period because I would have never have guessed before reading about the and shipwreck that there would have been so much stuff found on just one ship.
1: Yeah, I mean, if you are out there as a junior researcher or archaeologist uh, on one of these projects and you're counting beads or fragments of bones, We would just like to say that we respect you so much and it must be a time-consuming job. But then again, it lays the foundation for our understanding of history.
0: What I find perhaps the most interesting about this was that the researchers believe that nine or perhaps ten different cultures are represented by what was found on the shipwreck. A Turkish archaeologist has said that it might have been loaded up and sent on its final journey from Cyprus due to the large amounts of Cypriot copper that was found on board.
1: I mean, I'm the daughter of a merchant seaman, and a 15-metre cedar ship isn't similar in size to modern-day cargo ships, but it most definitely is their ancestor. It could carry around 20 tonnes of cargo and stores, plus... 24 stone anchors that weighed three tons in total
0: yeah so a bit of a fun comparison that i've just done uh, it could carry about the weight of 12 european family cars or seven american pickup trucks uh, for those people who want a bit of a comparison so it's huge the amount of stuff it could carry
1: Basically, it's the world's first car transporter in terms of cargo ability.
0: Basically. And for us, the most amazing thing is perhaps the cargo itself rather than the weight. And this list goes on forever. And um, some of the articles around there have just got lists and lists and lists of what's found on it. It was carrying raw materials and finished products such as both elephant and hippopotamus ivory, silver bullion jewellery and ingots, gold bullion jewellery and other things, 10 tonnes of copper, a tonne of tin, coloured glass, ostrich eggs and amber.
1: There we go, the amber, more evidence of the Swedes, Danes and a wider Baltic network spreading their lovely amber around. And if the amber is as highly valued as these other items, that would mean that the Swedes were getting similar sort of wealth back home in exchange.
0: Yeah, and one thing to mention before we look into how this wealth was generated and collected back in Sweden is that some people, including researcher Van der Noot, have said that they think a lot of this trade was actually done by people travelling the whole distance themselves, especially on boats, rather than relying on a chain of exchange. So that might be true for Britain to squawner, but it might not have been the easiest thing for ancient Swedes to sail all the way to Cyprus. Like all things with Sweden being at the edge of the network, it's uh, probably a bit 50-50 when it comes to Sweden's involvement.
1: So we can see how the Nordic communities were really tapping into this amazing network of trade. It ended up changing society in so many ways. It led to the creation of a Nordic lifestyle based on Mycenaean templates. You know what it's like when you travel and you pick up new things and come back home. These Bronze Age Swedes took up new habits like shaving and sitting on camp stools. Uh, That were some of the things that they were inspired by the Mediterranean cultures of.
0: Yeah, wow, good stuff having shaving. Uh, I do that sometimes, but not too often. Uh, The traders themselves, as we said, didn't necessarily go the whole way to Greece, so they would have been picking up goods and habits from southern Germany and northern Italy. Both appear to be a bit of a hub for all of this trade when it came to Sweden.
1: For some people, or at least a few, great influence came from controlling or being involved in this trade. This is found in the rich archaeological record from this period. But then again, for most people, bronze had few really far-reaching impacts. Everyday tools and weapons were still made of stone, bone, and wood. Peasant farming was still the center of almost everyone's life. That is the way it is throughout history, with the elites getting these new inventions and goods first. The area under cultivation increased, and later in the period, more intensive practices were introduced, including crop rotation and more conscious manuring of the field. This helped, actually, that you needed more conscious manuring, which is a phrase I love, by the way. I love the idea of conscious manuring.
0: Better than unconscious manuring, I guess.
1: Unconscious manuring is the worst, you don't want to just fling it all over the field you want to do it when awake and conscious you needed to be conscious of the manuring because of the climate which had been nice and mediterranean but was now getting worse in sweden
0: yeah not day after tomorrow levels of chaos but definitely worse than it had been previously in the latter part of the Bronze Age, what could be called small villages began to spring up in Sweden, which contained small clusters of families. This was when families became the primary group units of life, helped by the Neolithic ideas of ownership that we mentioned previously. Families became the groups that were organising work and social life. They started to live in elongated rectangular houses, built with walls of turf or interwoven sticks and dry mud or clay. Sometimes the interior was split into a lot more areas areas than we'd have today. You'd have storage, living, work areas, animal areas, all in one place, so pretty lovely, really. And some of them were arranged in a style with three aisles, a bit like a supermarket, and these are found between 1400 to 500 BCE, and they range in size from 13 to 24 meters long and 3 to 7 meters wide, so some of them are pretty big.
1: Yeah, that's a nice sized house, I mean, even if you had to share it with a pig or a cow. Work was also becoming increasingly specialized for some people. This had begun in the Neolithic period to some extent, especially with farming. But now we have a small group of artisans who learned how to smelt, cast and work with the copper, tin and bronze and even gold. These people may have held important positions in society, taking charge of the production of all this material that they're importing from elsewhere in Europe. That led to wider changes in society.
0: Of course, one of the major specialisations was the sailors. You can't trade very much if all your sailors keep dying, falling in, getting lost at sea or smashed into rocks. You'd soon lose all of your amber and bronze, plus all of your knowledge and contacts with the outside world. So these people need to uh, get surviving because you'd never be able to find your way back to Wessex if all the sailors died on every trip. So these guys were really the backbone of the entire community in terms of trading, but potentially a bit like today, somewhat forgotten in the background as the community just keeps plodding along whilst they're away for long periods of time. One thing that did change was the status and prestige of the goods of the elite. These were the few things that they did have to show off their positions in society with. They could collect all these bronze goods to show off how, hey, I'm a great guy, just look at me, I have a bronze belt, a belt buckle or something.
1: Yes, you need that physical object as evidence of who you are.
0: In fact this is quite important, bronze weapons and jewellery, some decorated with gold, are the most primary artefacts of this period, hence the Bronze Age name, and they were clearly used as a means of reward and to display status and in cult practices too. The wealth of the few is clear from the objects left in graves and what probably were offerings, especially as we push into the end of the period. The style of the graves and how many are found are also good indicators of this quite wide fluctuation in society. Uh, But more on that next week, probably.
1: Yes, we'll save the graves for next week.
0: And when we're talking about these specialist jobs, just building the boats, not even sailing in them, would have taken a lot of time and effort. It's been estimated it was anything between 250 to 600 days of work to build the Dover boat, for example.
1: Yeah, that is definitely a specialisation. That isn't something you are going to do after you've finished working on your farm for 12 hours a day. You're not going to do that in the evening. Most likely, these were people who specialised in building boats all the time and their food was provided by someone else working on the farm. With this introduction of wealth in society came social status hierarchies. In the Bronze Age, we see structural social hierarchies develop. Classes, if you like, a class system where we've got a rich upper class. Like Chris said, they can import snazzy bronze stuff and things like that from abroad and ornate themselves and their clothes. This new upper class were probably rich farmers and tradesmen earning their wealth from farming and seafaring. And then we have a lower class that had none of the bronze bling and toiled for the upper class. There had always been people who were better off than others, that's not in itself new, but it's during the Bronze Age that we can start to see structural differences between people because of wealth and prosperity. Because we now have a settled village society with trade, farming and craftsmanship that allow for some to gain and for others to lose. An environment had developed that allowed for some to be masters and for others to be slaves, quite literally.
0: And that's a fundamental change that comes with living on farms and not moving around all the time. You can't just collect 25 gold swords if you're having to move every month as a hunter-gatherer. You just can't carry all that stuff. And whereas if you've got a farm, you can have a whole part of your house which is just to collect your gold swords and keep them there. So that's just how much time has changed. And we've been talking about owning things, but also people, briefly. Let's not forget that this is a time where it's completely normal for some people to own other people. And that'll be the case for a large part of Swedish history, sadly. But speaking of things that have become completely normal, we also see an increase of violence in this period.
1: True. I mean, violence is nothing new. People who lived in Sweden before this period had also been violent. If you ask me, violence is probably something innate to us as a species, but that's a topic for a different podcast, really. What we see during the Bronze Age is how this hierarchical society is controlled by using threats and by using violence. Material wealth and the ability to exert violence means high status. Or, to put it bluntly, it's all about that shiny bronze sword and who could wield it.
0: Archaeologists have found evidence of this type of violence from all over Europe. Lots of swords have been found buried, both in the graves of wealthy people but also in what looks like ritual sacrifices. The skeletons and bones that have been found also speak of this violence. The injuries that these skeletons have show that people didn't always die a peaceful death from natural causes and far from it.
1: No, definitely. One such beaten skeleton from this period is that of a man who was found in the early 1950s near Gronhammar, which is just north of Stockholm. Granhammer's Mannen, the man from Gronhammar, as he's known, is often credited as being Sweden's first murder victim.
0: Pretty cool. I mean, uh, not for him, but, but for us, I guess. <laughs>
1: Yeah, no, I know what you mean. It's cool that we have Sweden's first murder victim. Now, I mean, very much most likely there had been murders before this. Gorn gets the credit since he's one of the earliest and best preserved ones that have been found.
0: And because we found him, we've been able to investigate how he died. So I guess this could be welcome to CSI Bronze Age Sweden.
1: <laughs> oh, yeah.
0: Oh, I think I might actually put in a bit of theme music in there. Uh, Oh,
1: yeah, please do, if we can clear the copyright.
0: (laughs) Not the CSI theme music, but our own uh, music. So, uh, go theme music. Hi. Hello, and welcome to this investigation.
1: This man lost his life in a bloody axe battle sometime in the century 800 BCE. His murderer, or murderers, we don't know if there were many literally hacked the left part of his face off.
0: That does tend to kill people.
1: Yeah, if you lose half your face, that might mean that you bleed to death. It's so violent, and they used an axe that hasn't been found, so that means the murder weapon still hasn't been found in this Bronze Age murder case.
0: That's quite disappointing. Uh, We might not be able to solve this hard case then.
1: No, we might not. The victim, the man from Grand Hamar, was then probably thrown into a marsh, which helps explain why his remains are so well preserved. When he died, he was in his 50s and he had seriously worn out teeth. Probably had a worse toothache than you've been having lately with your wisdom tooth being removed.
0: Oh yeah, not nice.
1: Yeah, he had a chronic infection in his jaw and signs of repetitive stress injuries in his right arm.
0: So maybe they were just trying to help him with his toothache by cutting his jaw off? Maybe this was just the world's first bad dentist.
1: I mean, could be, but I don't think so. I do think that these things that were found on his skeleton really tells us about life and what that was like for an ordinary Swede in the Bronze Age. When you got to the age of 50, well, you were pretty much worn out. You had these injuries and strains on your body from the work you'd had to do, your teeth were rotting, and yeah, you were kind of worn out. But that doesn't justify you being killed.
0: (laughs) Well, no, yeah, but we don't know why he was killed. But what else do we know about him apart from his rubbish death and rubbish health (laughs)
1: The injuries on his skeleton suggest that he did try to defend himself from his attackers.
0: Or from his dentist.
1: (laughs) Yeah, well, they were interchangeable terms, really. Forgive us, any dentists listening.
0: No, no, my dentist was amazing, so thank you, dentist. Uh, Thank you for the help.
1: (laughs) The then did have these defense wounds, so he did try to... Yeah, defend himself. We obviously don't know what the motive behind the murder was, but it goes to show that we're now in a society where stuff like this happened. I mean, Grand most likely wouldn't have been the only murder. What happened to him shows us how violent, and not just randomly violent, but deliberately violent life in Bronze Age Sweden could be.
0: Yeah, it's pretty brutal, really. And we could seriously do a CSI Bronze Age thing on this guy, but that's uh, not really what the people are here for, so you can uh, just go read more about it himself. There's a lot more detail on this. Um, don't know if there's too much in English, actually. Um, a lot of it's in Swedish, but it's still, it's still very cool and very interesting. It just shows you how this violence and uh, the first real murder case in Sweden uh, came about. And uh, with that, we'll end this mini part of the episode. So yes, tough times in Sweden really, but we do also know a lot of what's been going on in the rest of the world. We've been talking a lot about what's been happening in Greece, so it's probably time for a little bit of what's happening in the rest of the world section to end this episode too.
1: Like you said, Chris, we have spent a bit of time talking about Greece in this episode, and that is perhaps the archetypical Bronze Age civilization, or collection of civilizations. The Bronze Age was much longer there than it was in Sweden, and was split into a number of island and mainland civilizations, so to speak. In fact, there were three distinct areas, mainland... Aegean Islands and Cretian Bronze Age, known as Helladic, Minoan, and Cycladic timelines.
0: Yeah, and they were a bit different from Sweden, that's for sure, but that's possibly to be expected. Different weather, different styles of living, different materials available. The period is also known around the world, really, for its palatial complexes and widespread trade. Perhaps the most famous and impressive was the Minoan culture. I did uh, quite a few courses at university on them, and they had loads of really interesting lectures about it. It is really hard to summarise it all, really.
1: Oh, I'll try, Chris. Be brief.
0: So uh, just a few paragraphs, but uh, the Minoans were at their peak from around 2700 to 1450 BCE, and then they had a little bit of a wobble and decline, and things started going a bit wrong before eventually around 1100 BCE they all fell apart. And this is when the battle axes were becoming a thing back in Sweden, uh, but the Minoans had already mastered bronze and everything that went with it well before even the battle axe culture appeared in the Swedish Stone Age.
1: Yeah, way ahead of Sweden then.
0: Yeah, and they were so far ahead of Sweden that the Minoans could probably be called the first real advanced civilization in Europe. You can still find their massive building complexes, amazing art, first stabs at writing and of course the trade and all of that evidence still around today. The palace at Knossos is probably what they're best known for and it's often called Europe's first city as well.
1: Yeah, I mean, the size of Knossos is unbelievable. If we are talking about Swedish comparison, in the first palace period, which was around 2000 BCE, The area of the palace contained anything up to 18,000 people, but when it reached its height, the palace and surrounding city, real city, reached up to 100,000 people, and that's after 1,700 BCE. That's a fair bit more than Sweden at this time. I would recommend you read up on it if you have the time.
0: Yeah, it's it's so interesting. And yeah, the population just in in Knossos is bigger than all of what is now Sweden. This is at the same time as we're saying in Sweden, there are only about 20,000 people in the whole country. And then a short or middling boat ride away, there's a city with a palace five times that size, which is just amazing, really. So please, yes, do read about the palace at Knossos and the Minoans. There's a load of crazy stuff that they used to do. They used to jump over balls that rode at you, allegedly. there's a lot of debate around those uh, paintings and frescoes of them doing that. But, yeah, there's uh, lots of crazy stuff.
1: So they were into bullfighting?
0: Well, it was sort of. They uh, they run over and then they do a little jump over the bull, supposedly.
1: Okay, so more like a bull run.
0: Kind of, yeah, where they do a woo ole grain mm-hmm. thing, yeah.
1: Oh, well, good times in Knossos.
0: Yeah, there's lots of crazy stories like that. You can see why this palace had the specialists able to make the amazing bronze swords and artifacts that have been found in the records in Sweden because there were just so many people. Some of them could focus on this and they really knew how to do it. And briefly back to the general style of society in Greece at the time. Basically, they were palace economies, meaning that most of the goods, people and wealth were all collected centrally at the palace and then distributed from there out to the rest of the population. Mainly, the elites in the palace thought they were going to be the best people at doing this distribution and probably didn't trust anyone else. And this is probably fair enough, considering they're just about inventing writing, which would have helped with keeping records and giving out and distributing all the material that comes in so it kind of makes sense but of course these people and elites were still controlling who was getting it and ensuring they stayed rich too that's all part of the whole process we can't really spend a lot of time on this uh, for obvious reasons but for some reason at the height of the swedish bronze age there was an event or more accurately a big shift that changed the mediterranean cultures for good
1: And this is called the Late Bronze Age Collapse.
0: It sounds very dramatic, and it's one of those seminal moments in uh, ancient history.
1: Yeah, it's very dramatic. It took place around 11,000 BCE, and Robert Drews, in his The End of the Bronze Age, sums it up in a sentence, saying... Within a period of 40 or 50 years, at the end of the 13th and the beginning of the 12th century, almost every significant city in the eastern Mediterranean world was destroyed, many of them never to be occupied again. The palace economy of the Aegean that had served the people so well and produced these amazing cities that Chris was talking about and all this other great stuff completely fell apart and we ended up with small villages that became their own separate cultures. And this is known as the Greek Dark Ages.
0: This is such a big event that you even see this change up in Sweden and in the Swedish archaeological record. There's just less Greek bronze coming all the way up to Sweden at this time and you can see that the trade networks were really disrupted. But ultimately it doesn't make too much of a difference to Sweden. They still had another 500 to 600 years left of their Swedish Bronze Age and they were still trading with Britain and Western Europe. So because Sweden was so far away, the disruption didn't actually sort of affect them too much. They were quite lucky being so far away.
1: Yeah, so now we are reaching about 500 BCE and the Iron Age...
0: Yeah, so that will be next, that will be the Iron Age, but we won't be jumping into it quite yet. One of the key things of the Swedish Bronze Age is all the great rock art that we sort of kept at arm's length for this episode because it's so cool and we want to go into it properly next time. There's painted stones that are entering into the environment in huge amounts and on top of that there are graves, graves and more graves.
1: Yeah, I'm so delighted to hear that there are more graves, but we're saving that until next week. Next week, we'll delve deeper into the cultures of the Bronze Age in Sweden, and we'll talk more about those two main things, uh, those main traces that the Bronze Age left behind and that we can still physically see around us today, the graves and the rock paintings.
0: So that's this week over. We've talked a lot about Bronze Age trade and how they got all this bronze from all over Europe, from their crazy boat trips, and when Europe first began its huge network of trade. And it was how everyone was swapping ideas and materials and how shaving came from Greece all the way to Sweden.
1: Yeah, not just the shaving, but really significant societal shifts in this period as well. Families were structured and people lived differently now. The increase of violence, very violent teeth removal perhaps, in our first murder case, which turned into a full jaw or face removal.
0: Yeah, so much stuff has changed and so much of it has come from Greece. And uh, there is actually a lot of Greek history podcasts out there, including Casting Through Ancient Greece and the Hellenic World podcast. So uh, listen to those two if you want more information on that part of this story.
1: Yeah, we'll leave the Greek history to them and stay focused on the Swedish stuff. But it is nice to make comparisons like this, as no country or culture exists in isolation. History is also dependent on what happens elsewhere at the same time.
0: We'll leave you at that for this episode. So join us next time for more Bronze Age culture and graves. As always, please do leave us a review on iTunes or wherever else you can. Rate us on Spotify, which is the thing now. We're on Pocket Cast, Stitcher, all these amazing places. So please do let people know where to find us and give us a recommendation and let us know where you found us too. Yes, please
1: do. And even where you're listening from. We are on Twitter at Flatpack Sweden and on Facebook as well. Just search our name. You can also send us an email on flatpakhistorysweden at gmail.com. That's one word and we would love to hear from you.
0: We would. And if you don't want to speak to us, you can learn more about the podcast, us and all things to do with Swedish phrases and our sources on our website, aflatpackhistoryofsweden.com. But I think that's now time to say goodbye from us.
1: Yes. Hey, Dale.
0: Bye-bye.